deer can be both exciting and frustrating. They can be very thrilling during the fall hunting season, but they can also create a lot of major destruction to your fields and forests during the growing season. With over 20 million whitetail in the United States, this increasing population can create a significant economic impact to row crop producers and foresters across the United States through destructions of field crops and young trees. On this episode, we visit with Dr. Michael Cox about the new deer repellent solution from the Helena Products Group. Trico Pro was recently introduced this fall and early results are in. Join us on this episode as we better understand how to utilize Trico Pro and how growers are protecting their fields with this new repellent innovation from this rapidly growing deer population. Plus, Jody Lawrence joins us from Nashville to discuss the soybean marketing strategies for 24. Stay tuned for this episode of FieldLink. And welcome back to FieldLink. On this episode, we're going to dive into Trico Pro. You know, wildlife can certainly uh, ruin your harvest, and there's a lot of statistics out there that often, quite honestly, get overlooked. When it comes to soybean growers, corn growers, cotton growers, and frankly, any type of grower, deer population can definitely impact your crop as well as your harvest. And with us uh, uh, today is Dr. Michael Cox, who is the brand manager for Trico Pro. Michael, welcome to FieldLink. Well, thank you, Bill. Glad to be here. Michael, let's talk about a brand that you just launched uh, here recently this fall called Trico Pro. You had a great opportunity to Get this out, test it over the last couple of years, and see see it perform for a lot of producers, uh, not just on the ag side, but also on the specialty types of markets, uh, the vegetable markets, as well as the horticulture side of the business. Tell us a little bit about Trico Pro. Yeah, sure. Uh, Trico Pro is a repellent that, uh, as you mentioned, we recently launched in, in the fall, September of this year, and um, it is comprised mainly of sheep fat. Um, this was a material that uh, really originated from European markets where over the last couple of decades at least, they have seen huge successes with this material, with a, with a sheep material derivative and, and repelling deer and elk and uh, really anything in, the, in that cervid family like deer, elk, moose. It's been a huge success for them in Europe, and so they introduced that to us and, and, and gave us the opportunity to look at it and, and vet it. And, um, yeah, we've, we've done a lot of research and, and looking at this in the field over the last couple of years, and uh, it's really lived up to what uh, the information that was brought to us said. It's It's been better than anything we've tested it against uh, from a commercial standpoint, anything out there available to the, the grower or consumer market today. So we just ran it through the pipeline and development and, and you know, put it against the best stuff that we could find. And it, it has proven to be a, a very useful tool um, that we can position in the agronomic row crop markets, as well as forestry, Christmas trees, veggies, um, all, all over the country, all over the U.S. Great product. Yeah. So, okay, Michael, first off, deer repellents, um, as you mentioned, they've been around a long time. There's been a million and one different folks out there taking shots at creating something to, you know, keep deer off, off your grandma's flowers to uh, off, you mentioned Christmas trees, off the forestry products, as well as, you know, soybeans, cotton and corn, hot peppers. I mean, on and on and on. What really, in your opinion, makes Trico Pro different from some of the other, I guess, traditional products that have been on the market? First and foremost, I would say definitely the odor or lack thereof um, is really what I'm I'm referring to. Most common repellents that you would buy today, uh, deer repellents specifically, you would notice really quickly that they have a very pungent or I can't say spicy. That refers to taste, but sure. you know they're they're obnoxious odors, right, to say right. the least. They're they're based on egg solids or some type of blood byproduct or a capsaicin, like a pepper spray based type material. 
And even to us as humans, they're very obnoxious and you don't want to be close to the product. It's, it's not easy to use. It's not user-friendly. Trico Pro, on the other hand, does not really have an odor easily recognizable, I guess, by the human nose, you could, mm-hmm. you could put it. It's now to, to an animal such as a, a deer, which I don't, I don't know the exact number there, but their, their nose is, you know, multitudes more sensitive, sensitive than ours. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. to them it's different, but to a human, which good for us, right. the product is, is user friendly until, you know, you can almost put your, put your nose very close to the, to the container itself and you won't smell it. So I would say first and foremost, that really sets it apart. That and the formulation itself, the formulation is very sprayable. Um, it doesn't have the the clods or the clumpiness that you would get with some of these other products that kind are very settling hot. out, yeah. and chunking up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Which you you know this product's got to go through very fine nozzles, nozzle tips, and it's important that it's consistent and that it doesn't cause you problems or clog screens or nozzles. And it's it's user friendly to say the least. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, uh, this product's really designed to uh, be put through a commercial agriculture sprayer as well as a backpack sprayer for home use or in the commercial setting on forestry and so forth too. So it has to be, I guess, uh, easy to handle and easy to spray. Yeah. What about tank mix partners? Can it partner with anything or do we recommend spraying it on its by itself? You know, right now it's, it's still in the early stages of commercialization. Um, We've we've got more work to do on that front and identifying things that it can be tank mixed with or not, and and get that information out to the field. But uh, today it's not prohibited um, that you could you can tank mix it with things. But what we recommend is that you perform a, a jar test and look at the compatibility on a very small scale. And then maybe actually spray it if you're going to go on a crop that you've never put it on before, but it is labeled for that crop. You know, maybe you have high humidity, high temps in your area sure. or whatnot. Test this product or test that tank mix first on a very small scale that's representative of what you want to use it for and make sure there's no unintentional bad consequences or phyto that you may experience there, but it's not illegal to to mix it with anything. We just uh, we need to generate more more research there and get sure. those specifics out to the to the field. Well, you know, we've done a lot of research as you mentioned earlier, and I know we had a, a trial out here at the Agri Center in Memphis, and it was a really neat story. I had the opportunity to really see this and preview this product in action a couple years ago when we first brought it to the market and started our research, but. It was amazing to put those deer cams out there, and we had a soybean field out here where we treated, and you were very much involved with that, Michael, treated and non-treated, and really to watch those deer. By the way, the uh, John Butler at the Yegra Center International, who manages this 3,000-acre uh, farm facility here, did a research with the uh, state of Tennessee, uh, Game and Wildlife, and the property that we're on here has a 7 X times uh, seven times population for deer population versus other counties around here in the state of Tennessee, seven X. And we're still seeing really good performance with Trico Pro. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about worst case scenario, you know, to put a, to put a, a product in there and put it under high scrutiny. That's it. You know, seven, seven X, the deer density of Shelby and, you know, all the neighboring counties, which if you're, if you've ever visited this area or you're from around here, you you would know uh, the deer density is already high. So imagine 7X, and that's what we have here inside the Agri Center. It, it's a perfect population with the river, uh, the Wolf River, which leads into the Mississippi River. Lots of tree coverage, plenty to feed on. No hunting pressure. <laughs> There's no hunting because we're <laughs> in the middle of a city. So, yeah, it, it, uh, it's a the stars are aligned mm-hmm. for that population. Mm-hmm. You know, let's talk a little bit about deer, too. You know, there's some fun facts here that we did some research on as it relates to the deer population. Today in the United States, over 25 million whitetail are out there, Michael. It, that's a lot of deer. That's, uh, quite frankly, doing a lot of damage. The average deer, I, I found this really interesting, they consume up to 2,000 pounds of plant matter annually. 
Michael, that's a lot of corn, a lot of cotton, a lot of, a lot of soybean leaves that they can graze on for that 2,000 pounds. And the average deer, the average buck, now obviously depending upon where you're at, can range anywhere from 150 pounds to 300 pounds probably around that 150-pound range around here uh, yeah. in the agri-center in Memphis. But as you mentioned earlier, we get up into Wisconsin and to northern Indiana, Illinois, those deer can get pretty big. Absolutely. And the bigger the deer, the more they're going to consume. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is pretty basic science, meaning that average of 2,000 pounds could probably ease up to 3,000 pounds of, mm-hmm. of plant matter uh, pretty quickly. So that's that's the science behind things in terms of the, some of the challenges there. And this deer population is not going down, is it? No, no. It's, um, I, I think this is a scenario that's just getting worse, for lack of a better description there, uh, worse as far as agronomic crop production is concerned. Hunter numbers are not increasing. If, if anything, they're flat to decreasing You know, across the country. I, I, I did... The fair share of research over the last year in, in that area just to figure out the market need for a product like this. Sure. And um, most states, not all states, but most states will, will give you statistical data showing declines in, in active hunter numbers over the, the last uh, few decades anyway. And a lot of that's just got to do with uh, other recreational activities available to, to people today, rural land is is somewhat dissipating from what it was, you know, 30 years ago. You, know, you got um, some of the more active, I guess, like the baby boomers and some of the, the generations after them, they're um, getting older. And, and I read a kind of a funny line, but it said, you know, it's a lot easier for a 35-year-old to drag a, a deer out of the woods if they, they harvest one than it is somebody who's 75. Mm-hmm. And so you get the activity level of, of hunters based on what what are the interests today and, and the generations coming up, the recruitment is going down. So not so the, the the hunter populations are declining and the, the recruitment is uh, decreasing in a lot of areas. And then on top of that, uh, the deer do, the deer numbers are not decreasing just because we don't have hunters. They're going to continue to flourish and do what they do, uh, which yeah, you know kind of compounds on itself. So, so Michael, you know, clearly uh, the stars are aligned. We got big deer population. We got urbanization happening. So these deer are becoming more and more compressed. They, the, we already talked. They need about two thousand plus pounds of forage to eat on to survive an annual year, which the average whitetail lasts. Uh, their survival rates about four and a half years. As you continue to grow these populations, we're going to have more deer, and they're going to need more feed. Mm-hmm. And that's what's tended to happen over the course of 10, quietly, I would say. Yeah. And it's becoming a bit more of a problem. We're recognizing it now. Growers are with in soybean fields and corn fields and cotton fields, so on and so forth. What kind of financial impact, what kind of yield reductions are you learning from growers? And what stories can you share with us from the field? You know, I, there there are a lot of areas, and and I'd say ground ground zero really for this product uh, hit mainly in the southeastern United States. They they adopted uh, this product, I'd say first, and in, in more in that South Carolina Georgia area and cotton cotton land. And there were plenty of fields where growers were were giving us accounts where some areas they may have not even harvested in the last five years. Because the deer damage was so was so extensive, and they uh, completely decimated that that cotton planting. Um, and after using one application of Trico Pro this year, um, shortly thereafter planting, when the cotton had had uh, germinated and, and cracked, that they were seeing you know a normal cotton field. It was it was flourishing. It had plenty of growth, and and they were saying, "Hey, this is the first time we've harvested in in five years." Um, your product really works and, and it works well. You know, financially, there, there are numbers all over the board, but, you know, we've seen numbers where, you know, in some years, farmers spend as much as $2 billion uh, reducing crop damage by, by deer and, and that's also coupled with a, with a few other species as well. But, you know, something up to like 90 million hours mm. spent. Now, think about the time wasted uh, just trying to, to get deer pressure off of your ground, right? You know, ninety million hours. What could you do in ninety million hours? Yeah. 
if you weren't pushing deer off your, your properties or, or putting up fencing or doing some type of method to deter them. Which is another huge expense when you talk about capital inputs, and that's just simply not feasible yeah. for a lot of growers. Yeah. and I mean, in, in urban areas, you know, you talk about Christmas tree markets. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's some economic impact data that, that came out on it saying, you know, $250 million annually attributed to deer damage in Christmas tree markets, $250 million in a year. Wow. You know, so that's, there's huge economic impacts here with deer damage. And like you said, it's, it's become more of a talking point lately. I, you know, with, with social media, with, with video capabilities on, on farms, and it's just so easy to communicate and word to spread uh, now that I think maybe that's attributing to the, the increase, you know, of, of deer problem being spurred across the country. Well, I think people are starting to recognize it as, as a serious problem. I can remember, you know, gosh, Michael, almost 30 years ago, I would be out doing side-by-side trials uh, when, when I worked in the seed industry, and boom, you'd lose, you know, seven, eight rows here, and it was like, wow, that can really throw a, you know, a, a plot off, Right. Big deal for a plot, but, you know, as a grower with a 40, 50, 60-acre field, eh, what's a little bit here and there, right, when you're losing a half an acre or an acre or so. But the reality is, as we just talked about earlier, the population has increased, Mm -hmm. and now that's expanding. And I would also add, too, I think we're becoming – I guess, more aware as mm-hmm. growers, as we incorporate tools like agri-intelligence into our platform. Yeah. And now we have some yield data that we can really pinpoint and go, what happened here? And we can visually see mm-hmm. some of that damage where in the past, we'd see green plants. They look great. Mm-hmm. I'm referring to corn here. It looks great. You know, we got a great looking plant until you get out there and the ear's gone. Mm-hmm. Agri-intelligence can kind of point that out to us. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great point. We can we can quantify those those losses or really put the the pen to the paper, so to speak, and we know where we started and we know where we should end, and we can track it along the way and we can understand what caused the loss or the the decrease there. It's just yeah. more visual today, and as growers get out and experience uh, those uh, fields, and and we're going. In a lot of cases, we're going, you know, row to row here, row, row to road rather, mm-hmm. and we're really getting up close and we don't have those uh, borders like we mm-hmm. used to in mm-hmm. some fields. You know, it's making it a little easier for deer to get out there, eat yeah. those soybeans, eat that cotton, so to speak. Yeah. Um, now, tell us a little bit, what are you recommending or what are some of your uh, sales folks uh, that are really touching this product? How are they managing it? Are they just doing strips around fields? Are they spraying whole fields? On the ag side, how are they managing this product? Yes, there's there's really several ways you can apply the product. I mean, we're not really uh, limiting the the grower and how they apply it. There's there's obviously there's uh, restrictions on the allotment of of Trico Pro you can put on an acre in a year, and so that's really the the ultimate cap. But we we have growers that may get they may have success with applying it as a perimeter spray okay where they just um, spray and, and we're saying something around a 70 foot swath uh, whatever that boom is um, but but make sure it's somewhat around like at least 70 feet but if they just make a perimeter application around that outside edge of the the field and and, and if you do a perimeter app it's probably needing to be something around that one gallon per acre rate does need to be a little bit on the higher end of that rate spectrum. But a lot of guys are are having success with that type of application. Now, on the other hand, there are areas uh, with extremely high deer densities and and hungry deer. And I mean, there's many factors that contribute to uh, the success of the product and, and how much deer pressure you're going to have or how, how much of a, a pressure they're going to put on your product. But many, many areas, they go to a lower rate, something like two quarts or one quart per acre, and they may need to spray more of the field. I'm not necessarily going to say the entire field, depending okay. on how big your field is, right? Right. But um, a broadcast application, and many of them are finding that the more area they treat – even with a lower rate, just that that more coverage 
they're getting a better effect, a better repellency from okay. the deer. So it's like uh, the, the deer are, are trying to get into a field that has complete a complete barrier, right? I guess you could say, uh, versus a perimeter, and and yeah, the, it's just the effect of how the deer perceive it. Some of them are smarter than others. They figure out ways to get around the and perimeter. They can get really smart yeah, really fast. It's, can't it's they? scary how fat, how uh, smart they can be. But yeah, that flexibility is out there. Like I said, any anywhere from a quart up to you know a gallon to the acre type application rate, and you know get creative. It, some some folks may find that they can kind of stripe the field. Maybe mm-hmm. you do the perimeter, and then you don't want to spray the whole interior. Maybe you you know you do a, a row and then you skip a row with your a swath with your boom. Sure, just whatever you find that works for you on your your ground, your farm, your your field, wherever you are. It's really up to the to that grower. And I think, like you mentioned, it really depends on the pressure. It, it depends on I mean, a lot of so things. many factors here. But what we do know is the product really does work well. It ha- offers up a lot of flexibility, Michael. Are we treating every year, every couple times a year? If you're a row crop grower, what are what are your current recommendations? Yeah, again, I hate to I hate to keep saying it, but it depends. Sure, um, a huge majority of the growers in, in the the row crop systems, especially, are getting the success they need from just one application. Okay, because in in, in theory, if you spray it at the right time. Before the deer really begin to to feed on that crop while it's young and just breaking the soil surface, if they if they get on it too quick, it may ruin that crop stand, right? Sure. And you may have to replant. So in theory, what you want to do is prevent the need to replant. So you want to be late enough that the the crop is come up already in the, out of the soil, but it does need plant material. The more plant material you get the product on... You need coverage, right? Yeah, the better. So there's a give and take there. It's, sure. a, it's, a, it's a, fine, a fine timing. But if you, if you hit that timing in a good spot, then uh, one application could get that crop to a stage where the threshold is, you know, it's not surpassed as far as deer damage to getting the the uh, yield resp- that you're supposed to get. And so, obviously that's going to depend upon the crop. Soybeans yeah. and cotton might be yeah. pretty early. Where's corn, the growing point on the plant? Yeah, you know, it's, corn might be a little bit later, you know, because you're yeah. trying to really stretch that out uh, because they're really going to decimate, you yeah. know, the ears uh, right. later on in life of that crop. So, yeah. um, and, and Christmas trees, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's a year-round application, yeah. right? Yeah, and you're, you're looking at at multiple facets there with Christmas trees. I mean, deer will not only feed on those trees, those conifer-type trees, but they'll also rub them with their antlers and mm. cause damage. We're, we're talking, you know, aesthetics. In, in the specialty world or or those markets, you're looking, it's about looks. It's about right. aesthetics, the appearance. So opposite of yield, it's all about numbers and and. And sure. output. Now we're looking at aesthetics. So you don't want the deer to touch the Christmas tree at all. You don't right. want them rubbing on it. You don't want them feeding. So you may need multiple applications mm-hmm. in a market such as that. Um, it's it's really a repellency game to keep them away. No right. contact, yeah. more or less. Excellent. And 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 you know I I think the big key here is uh, it's a unique product. It's it's not a fad. This is not a fad because mm-hmm. uh, I know uh, we've tested millions of repellents over the years. This is one that's working. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't put our name on it. Right. Right. This one is differentiated than than the other ones in the market. I, I mean, we we set the bar high uh, for HPG brands, and and uh, it truly had to set itself apart for us to put it through our developmental process and and commercialize it and you know ultimately we wanted to make sure that we when we offer our customers a deer repellent uh, that it was the best that they could get their hands on that it was truly a a great tool for them to use and it wasn't just another gimmick you know and longevity is is probably the name of the game and the deer repellents many of them you can apply and they go away in a very short amount of time a quick rain yeah. or something or Any, anything sometimes it's, it's not even rain related but it can just be 
three to four days and that's it. Yeah. This this product with appropriate environmental conditions, you know, no no big rain wash offs or anything um, too extreme. You know, this product in in forestry type applications can last, you know, upwards to five, six months. Right. And you know, and, and that's huge in some of these markets where their options are limited. The you know, the terrain is is very uh, harsh in, in the Pacific Northwest in these mountains where they're planting conifers. Um, they don't want to go out there and visit these these locations very often. You know, once a year, they want to plant them and let them go. And the options are limited. They can either put a, you know, a Vexar-type protection system on those trees, which is very expensive and the labor is very expensive, or they can apply Trico Pro. You know, the cost is... 3x less than Vexar and it lasts longer than the Vexar does. Wow. So it, it's it's definitely a a game changer. Definitely a game changer for the forestry industry and I think it's important for row crop growers to know that if the forestry industry were they're I mean that is a big investment in, yeah. in some of those areas and they're utilizing this product and having success with it. Boy, it's something that if you're a grower in Michigan, if you're a grower in Illinois, or uh, as you mentioned, Mississippi and Georgia, this is something you want to get your eyes on. Yeah, yeah. Michael, this past year, we got a fair amount of this product out, and it's before we even launched it. Tell me about the feedback that you received. It's, you know, it's overall, it's been just outstanding results. You know, there's, there's always... No, no matter what product you're you're dealing with, or you've you've launched, or you're using, somewhere it may not work the way it works everywhere else, or it does it just doesn't do the job, and so you're always going to have that somewhere with any product. Th- this product, I, I, you know, I, I definitely think that we had less of the unsuccessful application mm-hmm. type scenarios than many other products that we deal with, you know, whether it's herbicides, fungicides, sure. insecticides, the the failed performance of the product. Something, Mother Nature, yeah. misapplication, something's going to Something. potentially go wrong. But what I'm the, hearing you say with Trico Pro. Very little of that. Very little. It's pretty limited. Yeah. Yeah. Most people uh, were giving us just crazy feedback at how well it worked. And, and it really surprised me. A lot of them uh, were using such low rates and still seeing a great a great effect from it. The repellency was much longer than I would have guessed they would have seen. Wow. So yeah, it's it's been it's been great from everybody who's used it, who's touched it. You know, ninety nine percent of that has been just really, really great feedback. I, I gotta tell you, you know, I've even throughout the summer I took a few phone calls from sales reps and some growers and they say to me Y'all been holding back on us. This <laughs> this might be the best product y'all brought for a while, yeah. but uh, you know it certainly uh, is a game changer. And when we have folks like that saying those kinds of things, we it leads me to believe we really do have something. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, it all starts for you got to set the bar high to begin with. You know, if if we don't if we don't set that bar high and, and really vet these products and these materials and understand the market need. Um, and, and what what our growers need on a daily basis to to get those yields and get their their crop stands or whatever market they're in, you know their success is our our priority. And as long as we keep our bar high here, then we should continue to get good feedback on products. Yeah, but right. you know if if we ever were to lower that bar, then the products will follow suit, and we don't want that to happen. That's right. You know, Michael, as as we, you know, get ready to flip the calendar and we move into 24, growers are thinking about their cropping plans and, you know, where they're going to plant corn, cotton, soybeans, whatever it may be. There's some things to really consider and think about uh, and really sit down with their Helena uh, sales rep to talk about deer and some of those impacts. Some of those hot areas, typically around rivers, creeks, where that population's high. But think about these areas that are pretty unique. I I know when we were doing research this summer, as far as where could some of these markets really, really be, think about an airport. Mm -hmm. You 
there's no hunting around an airport. You have limited restrictions around the airport area. So if you're farming around an airport like that or around a city, some municipalities where, you know, hunting's just not an option to mm-hmm. thin that herd down, Trico Pro could be a really good candidate for you to consider for 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 testing it out. Yeah. Yeah, you know, hunting is probably the the easiest and and um uh, the quickest return there on, on management type considerations of uh, in in anywhere you where they don't allow hunting in that adjacent few miles down the road or or what have you whether it's a a refuge that's protected or uh, sanctuaries you know I, I it actually opened my eyes I, I'm a I'm an avid deer hunter and I didn't realize that in many areas of the country that it was so regulated as it is even around some of these rural areas where. The, the farmer's like, hey, you know, the deer are decimating my, my soybeans and this neighboring 30,000 acres, they don't allow hunting, but it's not even urbanized. It's not, right. it's just a, a, a large sanctuary there. And, and I didn't realize there was as much of that um, across the country as it really is. So yeah, it's, it's all these obstacles are, are compounding on themselves when you talk about no hunting or urbanization and moving in and their, their natural lands and uh, just their growing population and the hunter numbers going down, all of this is snowballing. Right. And so uh, I, I think that growers definitely need to consider uh, how a product like Trico Pro maybe could help them establish uh, crops in, in areas where they've got high deer densities. You know, cover cropping, a lot of times it's, it's a popular practice and especially in areas where we're, we're dealing with erosion control and, and even weed issues in a lot of areas, it, it helps with it. But cover crops can attract deer right, and keep them there all year because deer are also attracted to legumes, which many of our cover crops are legumes or they're cereal grain type grasses. And, you know, that, that's that's what we plant for food plots in the hunting world. So, right. Again, <laughs> more feed to more. feed that 2,000 pounds of feed yep. source for that deer. And yep. we're just making it really easy for them yeah. with yeah. cover crops. So uh, certainly, you know, uh, agronomically, absolutely, there's a, there's a lot of good there. But, boy, when it comes to the deer population management, uh, we become a little bit more limited. Yeah. Well, Michael, uh, I mean, when we think about Trico Pro, I think the take-home points for our listeners here is it, it's convenient. It's effective, and 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 it's readily available. Mm-hmm. There's really not a tremendous amount of restrictions with this product. Certainly, we want people to read the label and understand it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, far as products go, it's pretty safe. Again, read the label, uh, know what you're getting into, but uh, it, it's a it's a pretty flexible product. Yeah, absolutely. Fle- flexible is is definitely a descriptor I would give it um, as as repellents go not a no no obnoxious smell that you would normally run into uh no application issues that you would typically find with meeting repellents and it actually works yeah. and it lasts it can last a long time so yeah it's well, game we, changer we we certainly want to encourage growers listeners out there that believe they have a deer problem, boy, talk to your Helena representative about Trico Pro. There's a lot to learn about this product, you know, but boy, oh boy, as we mentioned earlier, for a product coming right out of the gate, we've had phenomenal response from farmers, from foresters, and even our own internal people who can sometimes be very, very, they want to be critical because they want to ensure that their customers are getting the best product and the best value for their farm and their investment. Set the bar high. You bet. Dr. Michael Cox, I want to thank you for joining us here today to talk about Trico Pro. Uh, So our listeners don't let wildlife ruin their harvest in 2024. And welcome back to FieldLink. We're going to head on over to Nashville to catch up with Jody Lawrence. Jody, uh, welcome back to FieldLink. Well, thank you, Bill. I uh, hope everybody had a, a very drama-free and filling Thanksgiving extended break. Uh, coming back into some uh, colder weather here in the U.S. as harvest finishes up, everything's just about to the finish line, past ninety-six percent. But uh, certainly, hope everybody is ready for a uh, uh, just a, a good holiday season this year with 
without uh, with out a lot of stress. That's right, Jody. Uh, harvest is kind of wrapped up over a bunch of the U.S. Uh, uh, everybody had their turkey fill, and now uh, we're kind of pointing towards the, the holiday of Christmas and then, uh, of course, flipping that calendar to the new year. And with the new year comes a whole lot of different marketing decisions for growers to be making. But before we deep dive there, what's happening in the marketplace? It just seems really kind of quiet right now. Uh, yeah, the, uh, when when you get past the November report, the uh, markets just simply the news flow gets really quiet because the USDA won't make any major announcements as far as uh, this year's crop, the 2023 crop, until the January final report. So, other than just the daily sales reports uh, that pop up from time to time, and fortunately, China has been buying a good bit of beans. Uh, They've been on a tear lately, worried about the production coming out of Brazil. Uh, It's a quieter time, and and the tough part about this time of year is uh, bulls and rallies need news almost every day to keep that trend alive, where the bears are able to, and the bear trends that we've been in since the November report raised the corn yield, you see corn slipping down to three-year lows yesterday and making uh, down a couple cents today, that it's it's very difficult to turn uh, any trend around right now if South America is having normal weather. But fortunately, uh, you know, not for them, but in the big picture for U.S. productivity or, excuse me, uh, profitability, uh, they are having some trouble in northern Brazil. They've had a really weak uh, uh, monsoon season. They're coming in dry. It's so it's so dry that harvest is about uh, 15% behind normal, about 10 points. And that leads into this bean crop leads into the safrina planting in January, February. And then if that gets delayed, they end up, same same issues happen in the United States. If you have delayed planting, you push pollination into the hotter, drier time of the year. So the, the big issue right now is people are watching Brazil because if they continue to be stressed and feel like they're losing production, then the other domino in that chain is China coming to the U.S. to buy replacement bushels, whether it's corn, beans. We've even done a little wheat business with them out of the Pacific Northwest over the past couple of weeks that uh, is unusual. But that's really the big news right now. It's nice to see that the uh, you've got some calming tensions in uh, in. Gaza Strip over what has happened over the last 30 days. The ceasefire has gone on. So that certainly has spilled over into the energy markets uh, as one input. And you have crude down to $75 a barrel and you have December futures at $279 a gallon that it it doesn't look like this is going to spread to a more Muslim version. Uh, Jewish or Christian type conflict. So uh, it, because uh, we've got, you know, crude oil uh, and the big ba- and the big kind of overwhelming concern is this, that the inflation numbers out of the U.S. have been coming in at or below target for what the Federal Reserve has been trying to do with the rate cuts in curbing inflation and the rest of the world is feeling that pinch a little bit of a slowing world economy and a slowing U.S. economy that, uh, you know, some type of recession, be it mild or be it uh, a soft landing in, in 2024, you look at the demand outlook for a lot of these different raw materials and you can see the impact of that concern of a 2024 worldwide demand slowdown. Yeah, definitely slowing down. Um, and you said it a mouthful there when you talked about the bulls. And I've always heard the line, you know, you got to feed the bull uh, to get a bull rally. And uh, there's just not a lot happening, really, uh, when you peel that onion back. You referenced uh, Brazil, certainly some things happening down there, but calming down there in terms of weather. Uh, and, of course, the Middle East calming down for now. Uh, and, and slowing some things down there. But Jody, you know, as growers get ready to flip the calendar um, and start thinking about 
what am I going to put in the ground next year? What are some strategies uh, that growers can take a look at? You know, we talked a little bit about Brazil, kind of the shakeup there with soybeans. It feels like the soybean thing, there's, there's still a pretty strong demand for some some soybeans, uh, some reports on soybean meal, and as well as, you know, a lot of plants are coming on uh, uh, press, uh, coming on uh, online here for oil. Uh, what, what's your insight? What's your thoughts around strategy for soybeans for 24? That's a great question to consider because right now, as everybody is closing up the books on 23, looking for, you know, looking ahead to 2024, how are you managing your cash flow for your taxes for the next 30 days? Then how are you preparing to either take your checks in 24 or what checks to write, what checks checks to receive. This always becomes a little bit of a, a dance o- over the next month. But right now what we're seeing is the trend is that the demand profile for beans worldwide is going to be larger than what it looks like total world production is going to be. So we expect in the United States that there could be at least a two to three million acre shift of beans going into corn or coming out of corn into beans next year, potentially even four million acres, depending on how uh, the next six weeks kind of sets up with Brazil's weather and the potential of a rally there, simply because you look at the livestock numbers in China will start there, that they are back to pre-ASF numbers, uh, which was 2018, so you're two years before COVID there, on their hog herd numbers. So you know that their demand is enormous, that it's so large that they're having to support their internal hog prices, which doesn't help the hog producers because our exports will be hurt. But it does tell you that they're going to need an awful lot of bean meal, an awful lot of corn to feed their livestock industry. And China uh, always makes reference that they want to expand it and become a larger domestic producer of everything, whether it is meat-based protein or plant-based protein. So uh, we feel like that meal demand, and we've seen it because meal has run to a new three-year high. Crush margins have been incredibly profitable for world and domestic crush operators and crush facilities over the last six to eight weeks. And the demand for meal worldwide has been really good. Uh, while the U.S. Uh, will just stay on the uh, uh, livestock numbers, the U.S. herds are growing a little bit. And we can see that in cattle. Cattle have had a very unfortunate last couple of weeks where everything was bullish, bullish, bullish. And then it, it's it's hard to find another market that's been hit harder that's gone from incredibly red hot bullish late summer to just in an absolute free fall for what appears to be you know uh, very uh, you wouldn't call it an event driven rally it was just the end of a big bull market so you know that in for those prices to fall that you have uh, some expansion in the US livestock herd it is going to be interesting how that uh, reflects out in 24 because now prices are so low, you've got herd liquidation. So the cattle industry and the hog industry are going to be interesting to watch from a demand aspect for bean meal, corn, other feed sources. And then to tie on to the bean demand, you've had several of the uh, biodiesel uh, new crush facilities come online in uh, since September, and they're anticipating 10 to 12 more of them being finished in the first half of 2024. And we've talked about this briefly before, but we were fortunate to go to uh, a meeting where a crush facility uh, owner spoke, uh, and the facility's right next to one of Helena's retail locations. And there are three opening within about a 200 mile radius and maybe even a smaller radius in. Uh, north in uh, north central uh, 
Nebraska, and they're each going to need 50,000 bushels a week to meet capacity. And by the time you start taking that to kind of an exponential, uh, well, it's not just a time three, three number, it's a times 20 number. When you take that out to a million bushels a week extra already in the system, uh, the bean demand is going to be something uh, very close to watch. And it's hard to imagine that all of the sudden they can end that demand because all of these companies, whether they're the oil companies or private investors, have invested hundreds of millions of dollars to put these facilities together. They're getting enormous tax breaks as a uh, green energy source. So we really feel like the demand for bean oil the demand for beans, and then on the back, the back of it, the demand for uh, bean meal through the feed industry is going to be the biggest driver that we see. Unfortunately, while our prices are competitive in the world, we've got plenty of corn. Uh, even with the crop coming in a little at, at a one seventy three, the world has plenty of corn in between us and Brazil, and Russia's wheat crop seems to be getting bigger every time they set out, they put out a public announcement about the crop size and Russia has just completely dominated the world wheat market on price and kept us while we're competitive by the time you figure in uh, taxes and shipping and everything else. It's just cheaper for everybody to get it to through Russia. So I think what we saw, and this goes back to uh, you know, you got to spread some blame across the entire industry. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was looked at as going to be an enormous disruptor in world grain flows, and it just hasn't happened. We're back to well below pre-invasion prices on wheat uh, and corn. And, it, you know, if, uh, it, if the Ukraine is going to be able to find their sources out and Russia is going to have no problems getting their bushels out, we're right back where we started. And then it simply becomes a simple supply and demand issue where the world is out producing us in corn and wheat at a time where we're heading into probably in the grain sector, uh, slower world demand. Yeah, slower demand and you know, you referenced quite a lot here on the livestock side domestically. You touched on the cattle herd situation. You know, the numbers there, what's going on in the cattle industry. Some of the herd numbers are, are at some of the lowest from, geez, I saw a report, I believe, back to the 70s even. Uh, so just overall herd numbers are certainly not there. So looking forward, you know, where where's that uh, meal, where's the corn going to go? You can't just flip a switch on and change your herd overnight like other species like hogs and chickens so forth that can turn a lot quicker you've got a 10 to 14 month uh, delay there with cattle yeah and i think you've got to look out uh there, there are two sides to this the demand side for 2024 from the feed demand side from the u.s herd uh is probably going to be less than it has been uh but it also you you have to look at that as a positive. If you are raising cattle and looking at buying feeders right now, in that long the the long play that the entire cattle industry has to do, it's like you said, it's you know it's a minimum year before you can really make a huge difference in the number on feed and what's marketed and uh, what's placed. So it uh, I, I would expect from here and take this with a grain of salt because I certainly didn't see the collapse in cattle coming, but I can see cattle prices certainly becoming better and rallying into, uh, you know, the first couple quarters of 2024. Yeah, definitely. I, I would agree with that. I think, you know, the palate there, the, the American consumer is still, you know, they're not backing off on beef by any means. Uh, we've seen a pretty good trend there. Uh, but you, you touched on the overall economy, you know, there's, the average consumer is just not feeling it in their pocketbook. I mean, they, they don't have the resources like they did 14, 18, 24 months ago. Uh, so when they step into that grocery store, it's a little, you got to dig a little deeper, make some tougher choices. Yeah, the hard reality of the mailbox money for a lot of uh, the po the U.S. population is is certainly hitting 
a, a lot of a lot of the demand things that we're seeing, whether it's on uh, the food side or on the retail side, heading into the Christmas season. Yeah, definitely. Well, Jody, uh, thanks for sharing some strategy as we uh, get ready for. You know, getting ready. We're not there yet. We're 30 days out from flipping that calendar uh, to the new year. But as you mentioned earlier, it's time for growers to start calculating, you know, their yields and, and getting some strategy together for the, the beginning of the new year. Yeah. And for and for next year, we've got a little bit of conflicting information on what the input costs are going to be. We don't see any dramatic increases, and certainly the markets are far less volatile than they have been over the last two years. But when you look at uh, December 24 corn at 504 and November 24 beans trading at 1290, you've got, you know, you've got prices that uh, you've got to start putting some uh, pen to paper on getting prepay quotes, getting bid sheets together so that you know if normal yields and rents and land opportunity costs and everything else that you figure into this, if you want to sell some, 504 compared to what we've had the last couple of years doesn't sound like a great price, but if you're making money, it's a great, it's a really good price. And, and the same with beans. While a little more favorable to a bean rally, uh, we certainly can see if we get and. You know, we it's crazy to think, but the February intention numbers is is right at three months away, and that's going to have a huge impact in what goes on. So we've got several different things that will develop over the next two three months. Uh, Brazil's crop, the number one, that are going to affect everybody's decisions in 2024 in the northern hemisphere. Yeah, that's a great point, and I think you know, I guess some of the best advice that I. I think you and I both can probably share with growers that are listening out there is to catch up with your Helena rep and start making your plan. Start developing that cropping plan for 24 uh, so that you can make some great decisions based on the economics that are in front of you uh, and take a good look at some of these opportunities that are, uh, as you mentioned, uh, things are stabilizing on the input side and uh, it's a pretty good time to put a plan together. I agree. And that's, uh, that's, that's the good, that's the good advice I've got. And we can talk a little more strategy because news will stay slow on the next couple podcasts in December. So we'll talk some strategy on that and even looking at uh, you know, the big picture of uh, how to handle 23 crop and what to do looking ahead to 24 crop. All right, Jody. Jody uh, Lawrence joining us from Nashville. Jody, thanks for joining us here on this episode of FieldLink. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for joining us on this episode of FieldLink. Be sure to subscribe to the FieldLink podcast wherever you get your podcasts or follow us on one of our social media platforms at Helena Agra. Be sure to ask your Helena representative if Trico Pro is right for your farm.